Hello everyone and thank you for joining me for this podcast all about gout. Now what I want to do is describe what it is and how it develops, the biochemistry behind it, interestingly the possible evolutionary explanations for gout and the treatments that currently exist. And fundamentally I want to explain why I call it the disease of kings. So arthritis is a family of diseases that cause pain and cause swelling in the joints. Now, osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis, and I've done a podcast on the latter of the two fairly recently, are two common forms of arthritis. Now, worldwide, gout is currently the most common form of inflammatory arthritis. It's characterised by swollen joints causing extreme pain that has even been compared by some female sufferers to that endured during childbirth. It used to be a disease typically afflicting the well-off and well-fed members of society. As such, it was commonly referred to as the disease of kings. Famous sufferers of gout include Alexander the Great, King Henry VIII, Benjamin Franklin, and even Christopher Columbus. Now, in recent decades, however, both the prevalence and the incidence of gout has increased dramatically. It's now estimated that it affects between 1 and 7% of the global population. It affects 1 in 40 people in the UK, and about even 1 in 20 people in Australia, for example. So who is actually at risk of developing this? Well, Although gout affects an extremely wide range of people, there are some risk factors associated with developing this condition. Now, they include weight. And if we look into that, approximately half of all gout sufferers are actually overweight. Biological sex. So males are more likely to develop gout than women. And age. Now, the incidence tends to increase with age, sort of plateauing around about 45, 46. But there are... A few others, pre-existing medical conditions. So high blood pressure, diabetes, um, obesity, metabolic syndrome, all known to increase the risk of gout. Then there's genetic predisposition. So many sufferers actually have a family history of it. And finally, as you might have suspected, diet has something to do with it. So some foods that are rich in chemicals called purines, uh, particularly purines when broken down, produce something called uric acid. And that is the chemical that is responsible for causing gout. So when gout first presents, it it almost always affects a joint of the large toe or the first metatarsophalangeal joint. Now, the conditions in this joint are perfect for the formation of crystals of monosodium urate or MSU, the root cause of gout. In severe cases, gout affects other joints. And the pain it causes can actually be unbearable. Needle-sharp crystals of MSU build up in the synovial fluid of the toe joint and cause excruciating pain. Even the most delicate touch on the inflamed area results in agony. So let's go in a bit more detail about uric acid and purines. Well, uric acid is a nitrogen-containing waste product. It's one that is produced as a byproduct of purine metabolism. Now, purines are a family of chemicals including the nitrogenous bases adenine and guanine, or for the students that are familiar with uh, DNA bases, A and G, basically. So there's adenine, guanine, cytosine, so we're talking A and G there. 
Now these purines are found, as I said, in the nucleotides from which nucleic acids, so DNA and RNA, are made. Now another familiar purine is caffeine and a chemical found in chocolate called theobromine. It's also a purine. Uric acid synthesis can also be stimulated indirectly by the metabolism of some other substances. And a good example of this is fructose, the monosaccharide found in many fruits, which when broken down results in uric acid being made and accumulating in the bloodstream. The majority of uric acid production occurs in the liver, the intestines and the vascular endothelium. Now, uric acid is a small molecule and it can pass through the walls of the glomeruli in the kidney during ultrafiltration. About 90% or so of the uric acid that filters through is reabsorbed in the proximal convoluted tubule. It's the same region, interestingly, of the nephron in the kidney in which glucose is reabsorbed. Now, the remaining 10% is excreted in the urine formed by the kidney, along with other nitrogenous waste products such as urea. So let's talk about actually getting rid of uric acid. So most vertebrates produce an enzyme called uricase, which can break down uric acid. However, humans, along with other primates and birds, have lost that ability. So uric acid can actually accumulate and it leaves them prone to gout. Now in organisms that can produce uricase, the enzyme converts uric acid into a substance called allantoin. Now allantoin is around about somewhere in the region of five to ten times more soluble than uric acid is and it's therefore far less likely to precipitate and form the characteristic crystals let's look at this from an evolutionary perspective the majority of mammals produce uricase and do not suffer from gout then why are humans different well it appears that our ancestors could produce uricase but Around 15 million years ago, the gene mutated to the extent that it was completely non-functional. Today, all that's left are the remnants of this ancient gene in human DNA, this fossil gene as it's been referred to. It's silently copied and passed on from generation to generation, despite not enabling humans to produce the functional uricase. The term pseudogene is used to describe such fossil genes and the human genome is littered with them. The question then is, why did humans lose the ability to produce a functional uricase? Well, several hypotheses have been proposed in attempts to explain this seemingly backward step, I guess you could argue, in human and primate evolution. So let's go through some of the popular hypotheses. Well, the first one is known as the thrifty gene. It's well accepted and it's common sense that in the course of natural selection and evolution, the lower the energy expenditure, the better. This concept of being thrifty explains many phenomena in biology. So for example, why bacteria lose plasmids when they no longer provide a selective advantage. It'd be a waste of energy and resources to keep them just in case. With uricase, the argument put forward by some scientists is that primates went through a period of evolution when water was abundant in the environment. Our well hydrated ancestors could easily excrete uric acid through the production of copious quantities of dilute urine. There'd be no selective advantage in wasting energy on producing an enzyme to deal with uric acid if it was already being disposed of in an environment in which water was abundant and available. And as such, mutations that resulted in the loss of this unnecessary uricase 
activity would be favoured. By natural selection, increase the frequency from generation to generation. Another hypothesis is the idea that it improves fat storage when fruit is abundant. So during early primate evolution, so we're talking about 20 million years ago, it's believed that our primate ancestors lived in an environment where fruit was abundant and formed a significant component of the diet. Most fruits are sweet due to the presence of fructose, which when metabolized results in the generation of high levels of uric acid. Now, uric acid in turn stimulates lipogenesis or fat synthesis. That enables uh, fruit-eating organisms to deposit ample fat stores, to see them through, uh, I guess, times of the year when fruit is less readily available. So a tactic actually is still employed by hibernating mammals such as uh, bears. Now, at some point around, around 15 million years ago or so, a change in the climate resulted in a reduction in fruit availability. Now, that meant that our primate ancestors were missing both an important source of nourishment and the trigger for laying down vital fat reserves that it provided. Mutations that reduced uricase activity resulted in higher uric acid levels, even in a low fructose diet, enabling our ancestors to deposit fat stores that would help them survive the harsh winters. And the third uh, evolutionary hypothesis that I'd like to put forward is the antioxidant activity theory. Now, the deficiency disease scurvy can result from a lack of vitamin C. Only humans suffer from that condition as, like other primates, but unlike other mammals, they lack the ability to synthesize vitamin C in their cells. It's got to be obtained from the diet. Now, one role of vitamin C is that of an antioxidant, protecting the cellular machinery, I guess you could call it, from damage caused by oxidizing substances such as free radicals. It turns out that uric acid also has antioxidant properties. This has led some scientists to speculate that the increase in uric acid levels caused by loss of uricase activity was offset by the beneficial antioxidant activity that it provided. So, if you suffer from gout, how would you possibly go about treating and managing it? Well, gout has been well described since medieval times. It's no surprise that even hundreds of years ago, remedies existed to treat this painful condition. Now, one treatment involved the use of a preparation made from the roots of the toxic autumn crocus plant, which contained a substance called colchicine. Now, colchicine is still in use today as a treatment for gout. Just one uh, kind of little side bit about colchicine, especially for sixth form students listening to this. Colchicine can actually affect cellular metabolism in many ways, including the inhibition of mitosis. And it's because it prevents the formation of the spindle fibres that pull the chromosomes to opposite poles of a dividing cell. Treatments for gout are generally aimed at either relief of the symptoms during a flare-up or for longer-term management. So let's look at the NSAIDs, or the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So this family of drugs include familiar medicines such as aspirin, uh, ibuprofen and diclofenac. Now, they are commonly used to uh, relieve the pain and the inflammation that occur when gout flares up. Now, NSAIDs only treat, treat rather the symptoms. They don't affect the levels of the uric acid that caused the problem in the first place. Colchicine is often prescribed in conjunction with NSAIDs. 
Although humans like uricase, they do still produce the enzymes that synthesize uric acid. So one approach to treating gout that has been used for at least over 50 years is to limit uric acid production by using enzyme inhibitors. Now the drug allopurinol is a competitive inhibitor of xanthine oxidase, the enzyme that is responsible for producing uric acid. Xanthine oxidase catalyzes the final steps of the metabolic pathways in which purines are broken down. Now in these steps, hypoxanthine produced during adenine catabolism and xanthine produced during guanine catabolism are oxidized into uric acid. I said uh, just earlier the idea of uh, allopurinol being a competitive inhibitor. Just again, a side note, competitive inhibitors tend to be structurally similar to the substrate of the enzyme they actually inhibit. It enables them to reversibly bind to an active site thanks to the complementary shape and the active site is blocked, but no reaction takes place. Another form of treatment is artificial uricase. So if humans suffer from gout because they can't make the enzyme uricase, what better way to treat the condition than by administri administering rather, a functional version of that enzyme? So this approach has been used for uh, many years and several licensed pharmaceutical drugs are actually uricase enzymes. So there's one drug called uh, rasburicase. It's produced by a genetically modified or GM strain of baker's yeast, interestingly, uh, called Saccharomyces uh, cerevisiae. Now it contains a gene, specifically complementary DNA, a copy of a, a gene that doesn't contain introns, coding for a uricase produced by the fungus Aspergillus flavors. Now, one problem that can occur when using these enzymes is that the enzyme is recognized as foreign by the patient's white blood cells and it can stimulate an immune response. And I've done a few podcasts about immune responses, if that's something that you're interested in. Now, to reduce this problem, new uricase enzymes have been created in the lab. One example is a chemical called peglotikase. Now, peglotikase is what we call chimeric, which means that it's constructed using a mix of genetic material taken from more than one species. Specifically, the uh, region of peglotikase or the catalytically active region rather, is derived from porcine or pig uricase, while the rest of the molecule, interestingly, is from baboon uricase. And the reason why is because it helps to avoid stimulation of the immune system. And to finish, just mention a little bit about diet. Individuals who suffer from gout are often advised to make changes to the diet and to avoid purine-rich foods, alcohol, especially beer, and artificially sweetened drinks. Now, foods high in purines include things like oily fish, offal, so like liver, kidney, and meat and yeast extracts. Now, beer can be part particularly problematic, which is what I wanted to say there. Now, in addition to being purine rich, the alcohol it contains also stimulates uric acid production, and it reduces the ability of the kidney to excrete uric acid, causes dehydration, which concentrates the uric acid even more. Sugary drinks also contain particularly high levels of fructose, which, as I've said before, when broken down, results in uric acid production. 
So there we have just a little introduction to I say introduction there's there's a lot more research that I'd like to go in particularly um I think kind of like future treatments and future developments is a really interesting uh, angle to go here but I just wanted to do a little introduction to gout uh, a little bit about what it is how it develops the biochemistry behind it and the area that I find most fascinating the evolutionary explanations for it why why it came about in the first place as always, if you have any questions about anything that I've spoken about in this podcast, get in touch at kytosbiology at gmail.com. All that remains is for me to thank everybody for listening. Until next time.